Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Your host, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to another Logie filled <laughs> Hey, kids, comic. I feel crap. You're a pansy, though. I am. I've got a streaming nose. My eyes itch. My throat hurts. I ache in places I've forgotten that I had places. But! But. The shell must go on, darling! Yeah, I, I record under those conditions every week. I'm always ill. <laughs> the play is the thing. <laughs> and especially this week, when it is... <laughs> a week before... <laughs> my birthday. They said it's your birthday! <laughs> You're having more fun there than I I was having lots of fun there. But it depends on how you interpret it. My birthday was either last week or next yeah. week. Whatever way you interpret the wibbly wobbly timey wiminess yeah. of the show's production schedule, this is lovely listener Michael's 18th birthday show. Doesn't matter how you interpret it, though. I've still got no presents yet. <laughs> well, that's just the way of things. On Sunday, yeah. presents will be yours. Mm-hmm. I, uh, we've watched you grow from a little tiny fifteen-year-old who spoke like this. Into a big, deep, manly baritone that you have today. Yes, well then. <laughs> Smoke him if you got him. I thought you were going to do your BBC voice then. <laughs> Hello, listeners. <laughs> Welcome to After Dark, Welcome the comics television show. Because you hate its comics. That was my man, Andrew Leyland. <laughs> we all night. Uh, with oh. us are guests such as Angela Leyland and Adam Leyland and maybe Annie Leyland. <laughs> they were bears and turtlenecks to them. Chester and Meg the Cat may make an appearance as well. So got <laughs> Join us in your armchair in front of the roaring fire. And we will delve together into your emails, your section of the show. As tonight, we will discuss some of Vertigo classics. <laughs> classics of issues of pretension, from <laughs> Sebastian O through to Enigma. These are all classic Vertigo comics, the pinnacle of comic book achievement. The art is scratchy and unappealing. <laughs> the writing pretentious and long-winded. Comics don't get any better than that. <laughs> Actually, I quite liked Sebastian Owen Enigma. <laughs> I could have picked better examples than that, because Enigma was drawn by Duncan Fregrado, who I think is yeah. a fantastic artist. Are there any really bad Vertigo books? Anything drawn by McKeever. What was his name? Ted McKeever. Ted McKeever. Anything drawn by him. Didn't he do The House of Mystery? I cannot remember. Because I quite like that. Oh, well, you it, would. As long as it stayed in the House of Mystery and not anywhere And not else. wandering over into... Because I think he did a Legends of the Dark Knight that was god-awful. Yeah. And Mike McMahon. Mike McMahon. I don't like his stuff either. Give me Barry Kitson any day of the week. <laughs> anyway, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Uh, Michael has picked tonight's show topic. 
Yes. Which we're, are we keeping it a secret, even though there is a picture of what we cover when the show goes up on the well, internet? That, that's all your fault. You ruin it. You set up <coughs> these eloquent, long-winded, enigmatic speeches about what we're going to do next week. But then by the time you, you ruin it at the beginning of the show, I you, do, you ruin I do, it in, really in, the, in the little we didn't ruin it last synopsis. week. You ruin it in the, the picture. Last week we didn't say anything. They know not what we cover. Yes. And nobody reads my blurb anyway. Oh, no, no, no. As evinced by the fact that Chris Warden, hi Chris, Chris got in touch and said, you just ruined the comic for me. And I said, dude, we mentioned in the blurb that we <laughs> talked about it. And Chris got back in touch and went, oops, guess I should read them then. <laughs> Which made me laugh an insane amount. It's like, why do I bother writing them? <laughs> you, I think you're writing them for your own enjoyment. No, I find them very difficult to do every week because I don't remember what we did. Write them after you record. The Conan one. I should write. Yeah. What does Magnum the Barbarian 2099 have to do with our coverage of Red Nails? You should. But I'll forget this by the time I have to write that blog. Yeah, yeah, we'll write it down now. That's a good idea. (laughs) Anyway, enough of that. Enough self-indulgence! The show is a tightly edited, oiled machine of magnificent audio wonderfulness. <coughs> Hosted by people who can't talk. Well, there's always room for self-indulgence. There's always room for self-indulgence when it's your birthday show. Have we ever done a me birthday show? Or am I at the point where we just kind of forget uh, that it's my birthday? No? I, I, I can't remember if we've ever done one. No. Anyway, it doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> just accept that yeah, at some yeah. point I've had one. Oh, only one in the last three years I've had one birthday and I like it that way I'm still 38 Uh, emails we're going to do a couple of emails we love your emails I've not edited them this week Uh, Rob has emailed in hello hello Rob Stubbs emails and Axe Avengers 1 and 2 hello Andrew and Michael hello Robert glad you had a lovely time glad to hear you had a lovely time meeting Grant Morrison Michael did you have a lovely time meeting Grant Morrison, Michael? I, I did. Have I think we've covered that in depth. We have, haven't we? Mm. Although there's always more room. For always you. more room for you to yeah. discuss meeting Grant Morrison. Yeah, to brag about it. I do wonder if Scott Gardner wishes he'd give you a knife. <laughs> <laughs> Slide it in his ribs for him. <laughs> Acts of vengeance bugs me. Claims Rob as Parker spends a lot of time worrying about what his new powers might do dangerously instead of figuring out how they work. If he did that, instead of running around alternating between, oh, look at these cool things my powers can do. Oh, no, my new powers are so powerful I might hurt or kill someone. Oh, woe is me. I would have liked these stories better. He could have fixed the dying man his Aunt May loves, or he could have fixed poor old frail Aunt May who he's constantly worried about. But a lecture about what will be will be stops him from trying, thus maintaining the status quo. Could he have saved Nathan? I, I don't know. He had... Power cosmic, but I've well, never got any idea that the Silver Surfer can stop people dying, apart from in Rise of the Silver Surfer. Ju- judging from how Aunt May reacted to the life of that situation, <laughs> would she, how would she have reacted to, to Watch-His-Face coming back? <laughs> grumpy McMoodykins. He wasn't always Grumpy McMoodykins, Nathan. That was bad writing by subsequent writers. Yeah, okay. When Roger Stern wrote him, he was actually quite a fun guy. Okay. I like the concept of them switching out the villains to heroes who haven't fought them yet, but execution-wise it felt lacking. I didn't like a lot of the art, mainly due to the hairstyles they embraced, which screamed 90s and the fashion of the 90s, which is generally clunky and dated. And admission is that I didn't like the hairstyles or clothes styles of the 90s at all, with some exceptions. I don't think I really noticed in the 90s, 
<laughs> to be honest with you. Do you, Andrew and Michael, think it is best to try and make the fashion and hairstyle sort of timeless in quality, which can lead to everyone looking the same? Or do you guys think it's better to tie the fashion and hairstyles to what is currently popular, to tie into the era of the people buying the books? I think with something like Spider-Man, it's better to tie it into the times. And keep it contemporary. Yeah. Because if nothing else, ten years down the line, when you reread those books for a podcast, you take the f*** out of the hairstyles. Yeah. <laughs> because... Uh, John Jr. did give Peter Parker a mullet in the late 80s. Yeah. In the 90s, he just gave him long hair. But in the late 80s, he gave him a mullet. And the many hairstyles of Mary Jane were quite questionable, mm. I think. They gave Superman a mullet. They did not give him a mullet. They, they, he had long hair, because he could tie it back in a ponytail. You cannot do that with a mullet. Artistic licensing. It was a mullet, man. It was a ponytail mullet. Get out! <laughs> His, his real name wasn't Clark Kent. Was it not? No. What was it? Mad Max. <laughs> Kent the Bounty Hunter. Yeah. I'm coming for you, dog! <laughs> Cartoon update. I like the latest episode of Beware the Batman as it moves the story forward and shows Bruce Wayne is really smart without being perfect. My favourite of the Hulk and the Agents of Smash is now episode four with The Collector. I've never watched Hulk and the Agents of Smash. Oh, it looks pretty neat, though. Does it? It's all the Hulk characters, including... Um, what's he called? A-bomb. So it's Hulk... A-bomb! Yeah, it's Hulk, Red Hulk, Red She-Hulk, She-Hulk and A-bomb. Cool. Alright, that seems quite interesting. I do like Beware the Batman, though. Yeah. I've been watching Beware the Batman. Thank you, Rob. Our next email is Nathan Wozniak. Hello, fellow Brit nerds. Or is nerd Brits better? I really have no, no, no idea which one of those would be better. What do you think? I, I don't know. Toss a coin. <laughs> okay. Hello, Leylands. As my introduction has hinted, I am also a Brit with love for mainly American mainstream superheroes. I just wanted to put forward my opinion on your show. I heard of it through promo. It was crap. (laughs) It sucked! (laughs) You guys suck! I'd heard of it through promos on From Crisis to Crisis and other similar podcasts, but only made the effort to listen when you started your Happy Birthday Superman series, since Superman is my favourite character, and I'm very glad I did. The show is awesome. Thank you very much, we appreciate that. It provides two very different opinions and is often highly entertaining. Only often, not always. <laughs> oh, I love backhanded compliments. Uh, unfortunately, my father is no longer around. Oh, that's quite sad. Uh, and when he was, I never made enough effort to have a proper conversation with him. So the fact that you share this interest is excellent. Your Happy Birthday Superman series was brilliant and made me want to listen to more. I've gone back on various episodes and I've wanted to write in for a while now, but was never sure which one to discuss. Then I decided the New 52, as it's currently relevant in the comic world. Only currently. Dan Didio will go... When Dan Didio's out the door, I think yeah. New 52 will follow him, but that's just me. I'm a relatively young fan. I began reading comics in the mid-90s and only properly collected titles from the mid-2000s onwards, so I was invested in DC when the reboot was approaching. I wasn't too happy about it, but felt that it could lead to some good stories. Unfortunately, overall, it's been a bit of a letdown. Unclear continuity, change for the sake of change rather than good storytelling, and most damning, the poor reputation DC is gathering with the constant creative disputes. I don't like being hugely negative, so I will say there is some good stuff DC is releasing, but it seems that the new 52 really wasn't very well planned. No, it, it, it doesn't seem like it was. I think the, the, the reboot, reboot titles work better if you just forget about the reboot. It would have worked much better if it had been a reboot. I, I guess. If it had been a... There have been no Robins! 
Yeah. This five-year timeline stuff is nonsense. We're starting from year dot. Like six Robins in five years. Yeah, that's just Well, they said it, he was Batman for six years, just underground for one of them. Was he, was he an urban legend for he a year? Was. And I think for another year he was just Bruce Wayne. Right. Trying to be Batman. Okay, I'm failing miserably. Is that what year zero is about? Yeah. Yeah, right, fair enough. Do you know what I think they should have done? I know it's easy to be an armchair quarterback, but what they should have done, right, is not release 52 books. Right. They should have released seven. Right. Seven books for One core member members the of the Justice League. League. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Green Lantern, Flash. Actually seven, isn't it? Was Cyborg? Cyborg was not a member of the Justice League. Yes, he was. It's only in the new 52. Still? Still <coughs> counts. Cyborg did not exist before 1980. Well, so. he is, it's not like he's in it anymore. No, that's true. So, and then... Well, Cyborg is. You let them continue for six months, yeah. and then six months down the line, you launch another six titles. Right. So, ancillary books, like Batman and Robin, detailing where Dick Grayson came from, and action comics and detective comics, right. and whatever else, but one of them is Justice League. Right. And then six months further down the line, you start introducing... To other tiered books Supergirl Batgirl that kind of thing Batman Family whatever yeah and you'd stagger your releases and I think they'd still be going very well and they basically the creative teams right you can create the universe from scratch there should have been no editorial edicts about five year timeline there should be none of that alright go for it that means all the books I'm reading and enjoying just aren't happening no 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 because Justice League Dark would then happen later and Swamp Thing and Animal Man all that would come down the line <laughs> I think that would have been more successful, but if, maybe... If that was how it would be, we'd still be, like, waiting for issue two of Animal Man. But maybe they wouldn't have had as many cancellations. Maybe the buzz, they could have kept it going for longer. Well, maybe there were so many cancellations because it was a trial run. But I don't see the point of launching a boot that you think is just going to be a trial run. It's the point of launching a boot you think is going to fail. Well, who's going to read OMAC now? I quite liked Omac. So what they do is they release this book, they hedge the bets, like well, maybe we should be experimental about this, guys. It's like, but you know, if no one reads it, we cut it and introduce more titles. And this guys at DC are like, well, we don't know, we don't know, Dan. We, we, <laughs> we don't know, we'll, Dan. We'll, we'll, we'll go for it. And then Dan's like, well, what if I write the titles? And then uh, Jeff and Jim. <laughs> Let Jeff and Jim laugh behind his back. Go, yeah, Dan, you go for it. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, we're not, we're not sure. Dan, well, we're for drawing as well. Oh, Gee, Dan. No, Keith Giffen drew it. Dan yeah. video didn't draw it. Anyway, back to Nathan's email. Uh, that brings me to your Justice League episode. That first six-issue story is so damn disappointing, mainly because I am or was a Jeff Johns fan. I enjoyed his revitalization of Green Lantern and his runs on Teen Titans and JSA. I was really looking forward to the writing style of the JSA to be approached to the biggest names of DC. Instead, we got a half-brained action film. I'm not sure what happened, but there's so little substance to that story, you'd think it was written by a 12-year-old. And then Superman punched Green Lantern, and a car exploded, and monsters turned up, and they fought them. And then a really big monster turned up, and they fought him. That sounds like Axe Cop. <laughs> Axe Cop was funny, Axe Cop was, yeah, Axe Cop had its moments. The art's good, continues Nathan. I like Jim Lee, but there's that terrible habit with Jim Lee stories to have splash pages and double-page spreads every ten seconds. I mean, the first issue of Batman swinging through the city is a double-page spread that looks cool, but I bought the comic to read the story, not look at a bunch of posters. There's no reason why that image couldn't have been one widescreen panel at the top of the page. The next, the first issue took about a minute to read, and for how much it costs, that's really not worth it. Well, didn't we didn't we agree with that? Didn't we say that the Justice yeah. League number one of the Justice League didn't even have all the Justice League in it? So what's the point of that? Yeah. 
I think Justice League has gotten much better. Oh yeah, as it's gone along, I thoroughly enjoyed Throne of Atlantis, which you said on several occasions. On several occasions, I thoroughly enjoyed Shazam, which yeah. I can understand if you are a big fan of Captain Marvel. Yeah, that that would be in some way heresy. But because you're not a big fan of Captain Marvel, but because I'm not, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was alright. The Trinity War stuff was good until the last issue. Trinity War was so Trinity War was a six issue build up to another series. It was really good until that ending. Yeah, well, no, I didn't mind the ending. I thought the last issue had some nice twists oh, and the, turns. Yeah, the ending was good. That last page, but it didn't have to be six issues to get to that point. Especially when um, they'd already ruined it for us anyway. Mm. Before it was even released, Jeff Johns was doing his little video campaign saying someone dies and then some <laughs> bad people show up and kill the Justice League. And then somebody else shows up and they fight. Yeah. And then Jim Lee shows up and says, buy our books, please. <laughs> uh, Nathan concludes, I mean, if this story is my introduction to superheroes, I'm not sure I'd be the fan I am today. Because ultimately, the characters aren't very heroic. Well, that's DC all over at the minute, isn't it? Mm. Green Lantern's a cocky idiot. Superman's a violent jerk. I mean, he's introduced punching Green Lantern into cars and then threatening Batman for no reason. It's also pretty stupid, grabbing Batman by the throat and telling him to talk. Did you not see the problem? <laughs> I reminded that Billick sketch of pushing people away and saying, Come here! Come here! <laughs> not a science major, I'm willing to bet. It's something I wanted to ask you, Andrew, as you've been reading longer than I have, although I've collected old stories and do greatly enjoy them. But does it seem to you that the overall superhero stories have become less sophisticated than they used to be? Oh, that's a very good question, isn't it? Yes, I know. Yes, still that's, small, though. that's a good answer. But overall... It depends on what you think of as being sophisticated. In terms of story structure, is perverting (laughs) the pinnacle of. In terms of story structure and the planning and plotting of a story and the artwork, comics are much better, in inverted commas, than they have ever been. Yeah. But there are some older stories where they handle the same themes and ideas in a much more interesting manner because of the comics code. I think there's also an impact of current audiences as well. They're competing with blockbuster yeah. movies and video Blockbuster games. mentality has entered comic books. Yeah. Which arguably started with Secret Wars. Mm. Because Secret Wars, Tom DeFalco's told this story, Secret Wars everyone thought was going to fail. And Secret Wars, he's not very good. In your heart of hearts, <laughs> remove your nostalgic fondness for it. It's not very good. It's a piece of yeah, but it's not. It's not good at all. It's, I can enjoy reading it because yeah. of what it meant to me when I was 12, but it's not very good. Civil War. Civil War was awful. Secret Wars. Oh, right, right. Well done. Right. <laughs> Keep up. So, okay. but what happened with Secret Wars was it sold through the roof. It sold millions of copies. So Jim Shooter yeah. suddenly let that go to his head right. and started telling people that Secret Wars is how comics should be written. Right. And so blockbuster mentality entered. Now, Jeff Johns' run... I'm currently reading, for the first time, Jeff Johns' run on Flash, the Wally West stuff. Mm. And it's great. It's absolutely fantastic. And I'm sat there reading it going, where did this Jeff Johns go? Well, you can see it in his Green Lantern run, I think. What? He's going away? From what of it I've read, you can see how he's turned into a really good writer into a blockbuster writer. Right. Has he become 
this sells, I will do more of this. Yeah. And it's kind of hard to fault that, really, in mainstream comics. But you can see, like, because of how long it went on for. Yeah, did, how long did you do Green Lantern for? Five years? Eight, wasn't it? It, Eight years. It was longer than how long Morrison was on Batman. Right, okay. But you can see how it starts off with, yeah, there are six issue stories, but then I'll do the odd one off or a two, like, issue story. But then everything after that will be six issue stories, trade paperbacks. Yeah, the the people that say they're not writing for the trade are lying. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that's amazed me about reading stuff we don't know anything about in the past couple of weeks is G.I. Joe stood up as a solid action-adventure comic, didn't it? It yeah. was a solid read. Mm. And they did them in one issue. And those issues were packed, even the one with no dialogue. Yeah. And Conan, I've carried on reading Conan, and those stories are dense as hell. Mm. And some of them are complete issues of Savage Sword of Conan. So you're looking at 50, 60-page stories. But they're still done in one. Yeah. They're still told in one issue. And they're dense and they're packed. And there's just as much sex and violence in Conan as there is in our current comic, but it's handled much better. Yeah. It's handled much more interestingly and much more maturely. And I think that's it. I think you've got to the point now, because there is no comics code, they've got to the point where they can do anything. Whatever they want. Yeah. And great art thrives under restriction. Yeah. Because great artists work around that restriction and create something that subverts whatever it is they're trying to get around and then ultimately transcends it. And we've said before, John Byrne has done a lot of stuff that he's cack and he's done a lot of stuff that he was good. But when he wrote a gay character in North Star, he wrote a gay character. He didn't write a character that was gay. And that was his big selling point. And Warren Ellis did it ten years later with the authority and got huge plaudits for doing it. And then Mark Miller took over and did exactly what Ellis didn't do. Yeah. Warren Ellis did the same as Byrne. He wrote a character that was gay. And his gayness did not define him. It wasn't, this is who he is. He's gay. He was a character who was also gay. Yeah. And then suddenly Mark Millar comes along, and Apollo and Midnight's gayness is the sole characteristic, isn't it? Yeah. And suddenly it's like, and there's the difference. The, the writers who can do subtlety, and the writers who can do obvious... And it's the writers who can do obvious who have gone on to be the big sellers, and therefore people have gone, well, let's be obvious then, because that's what sells. Yeah. Well, it is mostly... I don't want to sound too negative or too down on just this one man, but it is mostly Miller. I mean... I think Bendis is just as guilty of that. I, I guess, but it's the same with, like, um, Wanted, which has nothing to do with the film. No, the he just sold the idea for the film, didn't he? But especially how Wanted ends... <laughs> With a big splash page of an Eminem look, uh, lookalike inside someone, with with the, the the final dialogue of the entire series is "Look at me up your ass." Delightful. So you know, there's there's so, obvious, and then there's yeah. obvious. I mean, we're gonna do coming next week. We've got a very special two part story where Michael shows me on the doll where he was touched. <laughs> No. Next week we've got a very special two-part episode and a number of the stories that I've picked for this special two-part episode are every bit as intriguing and well-developed as current comics but they're done in one issue. And I don't know, it's a very interesting question. Ultimately, Michael's answer of yes and no is the best valid answer. (laughs) On the fence. Yeah, but it's not so much on the fence. It's not... 
we, we did an entire segment in the email show about how there are some magnificent current comics being published. Yeah. But uh, in all honesty, I think Marvel is kicking DC's arse up and downtown. And if you love DC Comics at the moment, if you love the new 52 and you love what they're doing with the new characters, more power to you. I'm not saying you should listen to me and stop enjoying them. Far from it. You enjoy whatever you want to enjoy. Is it not because Marvel are doing straightforward superhero stories at the moment? Yeah, and DC has for, forgotten what a superhero is. Well, that was, um, you know, just another plug that I, I saw Grant Morrison. Oh, good. During, during the show, he, someone asked him, like, what's happening to superheroes nowadays? And he said, well, nothing. They're not superheroes anymore. They're soldiers. If you look at the Justice League, they're working for the armor. Yeah. Uh, they're all soldiers now. Well, that's another thing that I was... I've read all your... I read all the Justice League of America, Justice League Dark, and yeah. Justice League to bring me up to Forever Evil. I caught up with all of them. And are we not bored now of the shadowy government that aren't good guys anymore? I just got so bored of Amanda Waller yeah. twiddling a moustache <laughs> and being ostensibly the good guy, but not really. Yeah. And I just got so bored. Did we not play this out over ten years' worth of the X-Files? Mm. I got bored of that. And I got bored of the fact that the Justice League doesn't seem to have twigged it. And I've got bored of the fact that Wonder Woman is, let's kill them! <laughs> She's turned into Fiona, hasn't she, from Burn Notice. Yeah. Should we shoot them? And it's that no. was fun when it started, though. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd, I've read a lot of the Villains Month comics. But my favourite Villains Month comic I read this month was a Captain Cold issue of The Flash that Jeff Johns wrote in the year 2000. <laughs> it was a brilliant issue. It was one issue. Yeah. It was all about Captain Cold, so it could slide right easily into Villains Month. Yeah. Which I think, for the most part, has been very disappointing. I've not, I haven't read any. I've not disliked any of them, but I've not liked any of them. I've not put any of them down and gone, ooh, that was a good comic. The only one I was interested in was the only Jeff Lemire one this month. The, the, the Count Versco one. Right, see, I've not read that. I've read... Since there's no Animal Man this month, thanks. To <laughs> yeah. I've read uh, most of the Superman ones. I've not read Zod yet. Have you seen the video on Bleeding Cool where uh, Rich Johnson puts his hel- the Joker's daughter in a um, microwave? No. Why would I watch that? I don't know, I just wanted to see what happens when you put a comic in a microwave, but Rich Johnson was on it for far longer than he should have been. So is this is off. this not book burner? No, it, it isn't it because the, the, the 3D covers melt. Alright, so, so he's demonstrated this by putting it in a microwave and burning it. It didn't burn, actually, he just folded up. Really? Yeah. So he just put a comic in a microwave and burned it for our amusement? Yeah. Excellent, good. And then he took uh, a 2000 AD, I think it was, that he had in the oven. You know, one he did earlier... And that was all fine and still neatly conditioned. But DC, you know, hit comic, DC comics burn if you put them in a microwave. So don't buy them. Buy your 2000 ADs because they don't sell on fire. But he's the guy open. who just keeps banging on about how much Joker's daughter's selling for. They sell even more for Rich Johnson's set on fire, apparently. <laughs> According to Rich I Johnson. I hate that. I hate that speculator idiocy. I can't stand it. Joker's daughter hasn't even been released yet, but it's on eBay for $239. <laughs> You're fueling that, you idiot! If you didn't mention this, we wouldn't know this. Yeah. You moron. <laughs> I, hate that. I hate speculative mentality. Yeah. There's, there's been a recent article on Comic Book Resources where they basically said that these 3D covers have flown off the shelves, but were thinking that they would have thrown off the shelves if DC hadn't bothered putting a comic in them. If they just released 3D yeah. covers 
they'd have they'd have sold. And it's it's I've, despite all the problems. One of the reasons I've I've cut down my order for DC this month was the three D covers. I know I'm in a minority. I don't care. Well, there are two D ones. So surely the fact that they have to print 2D yeah, versions... Yeah, but the point is you're still doing 2D covers and this month you would still have to buy four issues of Batman. If yeah. you're buying only Batman, you would still have to quadruple your order of Batman this month. Well... And I resented that. I resented Scott Snyder's that. not done any, No, it? Scott Snyder's not done any. That's what I mean. It was eminently skippable. Yeah. Zero Hour isn't in any of these books. I've read the Riddler one. It's crap. Hmm. It's not in any of the books, so they're eminently skippable. And it's it's DC once again fueling speculator, the the speculator market instead of concentrating on doing good stories. Yeah. I can honestly say I have not read a single good issue. I've not read any bad ones. But they're not good. But they're yeah. not good. They're certainly not worth seven ninety nine each. Is that what they're selling for? Which is for? what they're selling for new. And that's if you can get one new. Is that standard price? Yes. Alright. And I'm like, no, I'm not paying that. Sorry. I'm not paying that for something that takes me two minutes to read, but ooh, look at the pretty cover. Yeah. Can't be done with it. Anyway, back to positivity. Yeah, back to the email. Back to Nathan's email that we started, yeah, an hour ago. <laughs> it's a real concern of mine, as I'm an inspiring comic artist writer, and I want to be part of a thriving industry rather than a sinking ship. I mean, superheroes have never been more popular with the influx of films, but is that reflected in the comics? No, it isn't. I know I sound like a harbinger of doom, and I still have faith in the industry. To be fair, most of my fears are coming from DC's recent history. It's just a nagging concern at the back of my mind. Terribly sorry to have wobbled on for so long, especially with us constantly <laughs> interrupting. And I've brought the mood down. You've not brought the mood down at we all. We did that for you. Yeah, we did that for you. It's, sorry about that. We, we're trying to maintain positivity at the moment, aren't we? Which is why we've come back to read 70s Coda. <laughs> I'm not actually a miserable git. Honest. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to more shows. Yours sincerely, Nathan Wozniak. Well, you're very welcome, Nathan, because you provoked an interesting conversation. Uh, last one tonight because it's a very short one it's from Brian Hughes hello Brian Hulk in space which is just a fantastic title (laughs) Messrs Leyland Okay, I had to write. Listening to Andrew talk general physical science while talking about the Hulk made me write. <laughs> while it is true the average human would not explode in space, the Grey Hulk is many times larger than the tiny banner that Todd Muck liked to draw. So if the Hulk changed to banner in space while holding his breath, he probably would explode from all the urine the Hulk was trying to hold in his lungs. Love the show, love the high-key, low-key dynamic. Uh, thanks. And that's from Brian Hughes. And he wants us to do a commentary on Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but I, I don't see that happening. <laughs> Sorry, but I don't see how we could shoot on that in. Maybe, well, we have talked about doing a not comics season. <coughs> we have. We, we've I've thought about doing the Rocky films. That'd be fun for Watch All Five and then with your sister. Anyway, uh, break. I need a drink because I'm losing the ability to speak. And then we're back with Michael's 18th birthday choice. Yes. We'll be right back. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hey, you. Yes, you, hearing this message. Do you like podcasts? Well, evidently you do, because you're listening to one right now. Do you like giant monsters? Of course you do. Who doesn't like giant monsters? Well, then have I got the show for you. 
Earth Destruction Directive is the newest Daikaiju podcast on the internet. And we talk about all your old favorites, like Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Gamera, but also lesser-known monsters like Gappa, Yangari, and Giawa. We cover everything from movies to comic books to video games, and we're kicking it old school at EarthDestructionDirective.blogspot.com. Check it out, won't you? And remember, the EDD has got their eyes on you! 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 Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible. And we're back! Mm-hmm. And Michael's eaten. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, first of all, we must thank Jamie Cooley, belatedly. Because he donated, he put a tip in the tip jar. And did we it? thank you very much. He went on the website and gave us a tip, which we appreciated. <laughs> he gave he us, did it. He gave us a tip. <laughs> yeah. Guys, your, so, your show sucks. <laughs> yeah, here's some money to make it better. Uh, he did it ages ago, mm-hmm. and I put a note in to say thank Jamie in the notes for a show we'd already recorded, <laughs> so I forgot to do it. <laughs> Fair enough. This is the level of competence you've yeah. come to expect yeah. from this programme. Uh, secondly, I have finished Hey Kids Comics by Robert J. Kelly. Uh-huh. It's available through Crazy 8 Press. We did mention it a couple of weeks ago, and I've been dipping in and out of it rather than reading it solidly. I thoroughly enjoyed it. There was even one that made me cry. I did tear up did you? at one of the stories, yeah. What was it? It was Tim... Oh, was it Nihan? Tim Nihan? Something like his story was, was made me go... It, you're reading it. I don't want to say what it is to ruin it for people who don't right, right, buy right. the book. But... He was telling his story of his, him and his dad and his brother's love of comics and the way he's telling the story and the situations that they're in. You're reading it going, I don't want this to end how I know it's going to end. <laughs> but yeah, it does end. And it ends how you think it's going to end, but it's right. no less affecting for ending how you think it's going to end. And it was, it was, a, very, it was a very sad story. And uh, I did enjoy reading it, oddly enough. <laughs> so I, I am heartily recommending and endorsing Hey Kids Comics by Robert J. Kelly. It is available through Crazy 8 Press. I understand that it is available on Amazon and it's available in digital format. And get ye to a local comics emporium of digital... purveyor of digital goodness and get it bought. Why don't we, why don't we write a book? <coughs> I have. I am waiting for you to do the cover for it so yeah. that I can get it up. So that people can read. Uh, so, I'm sure. Can already read. Oh, I wouldn't bet on that. <laughs> so, you are holding me up now. I, 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 my, my cover partner. All that college work I do, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what did you do for seven weeks over summer, dude? <laughs> well, I, I finished it. I'm waiting for you to go with you, no problem. And then we just keep getting text messages. I'm not coming home tonight. Yeah, Excellent, all right, good. Alright, alright, alright. All right. Was that your error? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, show. I am handing over the con a young Mikey boy this night because A, I feel like crap and B, it's his show so take it away Michael. On the 1st of March 1954, the United States commenced Operation Castle Bravo and launched a thermonuclear device on Bikini Atoll. The bomb was believed to be 6 megatons in yield however had a yield of 16 megatons the radiation radius was so large that the boats out at sea and the people on the island were affected by the range, despite being told that they were safe. One of these boats was the Daigo Fukiura Maru, or the Lucky Dragon 5. 
The boy's chief radio man, Aikichi Kubiyoma, died less than seven months later due to acute radiation syndrome and was considered to be the first victim of Operation Castle Bravo. Even further back, however, in 1932, Hankai railway founder Ikizo Kobayashi founded the Tokyo Takarazuka Theatre Company, or Toho, which managed much of the Kabuki and the Imperial Garden Theatre in Tokyo, and in 1954, released the movie Gojira. Did you practice all these Japanese names before you said them? I did when I was writing the notes. Uh, <laughs> I forgot, yeah. It was a week ago. Yeah. Directed by Ishiro Honda, produced by Tomoyuki Tanaka, with a screenplay by Honda and Takio Murata, based on Shigeru Kiyama's story, Kojira told the story of an age-old monster, woken from its slumber by the radiation from the US's nuclear tests. The opening scene shows Gojira destroying a boat named the Ikomaru, and the rest of the film shows several civilians with radiation burns. The Ikomaru was based on the Lucky Dragon 5, and Gojira's actual attack on Tokyo represented the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but on a much slower scale. After suffering from several script problems and multiple drafts, and when the original movie fell apart, Toho demanded a film, any film, and on a plane journey, producer Tomoyuki Tanaka read of the Lucky Dragon incident and came up with ideas behind Gojira. During the early development, the monster was in the form of an octopus and an ape, until it was agreed that Gojira would be a fire-breathing dinosaur-like monster. After being impressed by the movie King Kong, Gojira was planned to use stop-motion, but that proved to be too costly and time-consuming, so a suit was worn by a stuntman. All the movie needed was a name. Because the monster had no name, the first draft of the movie was called G, or Kaihatsu Kikaku G, translated as Development Plan G, with G meaning giant. Eventually, the monster was named Gojira, a mixture of Gorira, or gorilla, and Kujira, whale. Upon the movie's release in 1954, it was the 8th most attended film in Japan that year and earned 152 million yen, roughly $2.25 million, at the box office. It was also shown in predominantly Japanese neighbourhoods in North America during 1955 and was re-edited by Jewel Enterprises in 1956 and re-released as Godzilla King of Monsters. Godzilla was a hit and became the first in a long line of kaiju films, the last of which was Go Godman, was released in 2008. After Godzilla Raids again in 1955, we were introduced to several other kaiju such as Rodan, Mothra, Gigan, Varan and Ghidorah, or King Ghidorah if you prefer several of which would fight Godzilla in one of many Godzilla vs. movies. We would also see a dramatic battle between Godzilla and his inspiration, King Kong. After American company Centropolis Entertainment decided to stick its greasy fingers in Toho's piece of pie and created a movie so bad that Toho stated that the film had taken the god out of Godzilla in 1998, Godzilla would have five more movies until his grand finale in my personal favourite Godzilla movie, Final Wars, in which some 41 hype up the greatest 30 seconds in movie history, where our Godzilla brutally murders the horribly CGI-made American Godzilla before going about his day. Whilst this was his final feature-length appearance, he would also make a brief appearance in Always, Sunset on 3rd Street 2, in a scene of one of his catastrophic rampages through Tokyo from the point of view of civilians. Ten years after we saw Godzilla and his baby clone walk into the sunset, Godzilla, American's next attempt at the kaiju, will be released. With not much known about the film other than what was shown at this year's San Diego Comic Con, unknown to us who didn't go, the question still remains... 
is there any point getting excited if it'll be anything like the previous film? The Matthew Broderick one's awful. Yeah. It's absolutely terrible. We were at the cinema watching that. Mm. And all the way through the film, me and your mum are like, we're on Godzilla's <laughs> side. Godzilla wasn't doing anything wrong yeah. till they started interfering with him. I want Godzilla to stamp <laughs> on Matthew Broderick, just generally, <laughs> yeah. but in that film in particular. And it was a truly awful film. And I'm not a huge Godzilla fan. I've seen a lot of the Toho ones. Yeah. Because in about 1985, I think, Channel 4 did a season of all the Toho Godzilla films and I watched yeah. quite a lot of them because they were on Friday night at about 11 o'clock and they were really good mm. but I haven't seen any of them since then Yeah, but some of them are really fun and there is a certain fun camp appeal to seeing it's two men in costumes <laughs> yeah. fighting each other on a small set yeah. of big build what's supposed to represent big building but my god they were fun films mm. and I did enjoy watching them but so, so tonight then we're obviously covering the Killing Joke. <laughs> no, we're not, because you didn't tell them what you're covering, you went straight to your spiel. I, I know, I was going to leave. Oh, right, I see. You've done it liberally. I did, I'm yeah. very impressed. When IDW started releasing a series known as Godzilla The Half-Century War, a five-issue miniseries part of IDW's Godzilla Sita comics in August 2012, it became the first comic I would download obtain... <coughs> despite not reading it until the release of issue 5. I'm sorry, I coughed over what you were about to say then. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> this series alone was all it took me to get into other Godzilla comics and Toho's Godzilla movies, which in turn made me want to watch Guillermo del Toro's love letter to kaiju movies, Pacific Rim. Which you loved, didn't you? Very, very good, I haven't yeah. seen Pacific Rim yet. Mm. I have to wait for it to come out on DVD now. No, it is, pretty, it is really good, though. Uh, issue 1 was released in August 2012 and has two covers. Well, we've only got one cover. Yes. We've got a cover of uh, a soldier in the foreground watching Godzilla just destroy what I presume is Tokyo. Mm. It's a good cover. There's a lot of detail on it. There's, Godzilla's there's in the background. A great amount of detail. There's a fantastic amount of detail. It's very like Jeff Darrow's work. And I like the colouring, which will be consistent yeah. throughout all of the covers, in that there's a lot of red, mm. which I presume is representing brick dust and such. But yeah. it's a great cover. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. The soldier in the foreground is slumped with his heads down as, as the rest of the town is... There's no one else around. The rest of the city's been destroyed. And he's just watching car, the carnage... Not Carnage, obviously. Mm. He's watching the Carnage of Godzilla trashing Tokyo. What are those things on his back? They're just spikes. He's a dinosaur. He has big spikes. All oh, right, okay, fair enough. I thought they were originally supposed to be some kind of crystal. They, they change depending on the right. films right. or the artist. Fair enough, okay. And there's also a lot of detail in the logo. Mm. Oh, it's all cracking up and there's wreckage. It reminds me of the Hulk's logo. Yeah. In the, it's Godzilla, and then the bottom of it is all cracked like Godzilla's give it a punch. Yeah. The variant cover by Frank Terran or Tiran is uh, black and white and shows Godzilla firing his nuclear blast below him. It's a pretty good cover. It is. Oh, well, I've not seen the, the variant, so I'll take your word for it. Sorry, yeah. I thought you were talking about this one. No, they're all pretty good. What I like about them as well is you'll notice in the top left of the covers, there's a little icon, and those little icons tell you which monsters are in it. Do they? Yeah. Alright, so in this one it's just Godzilla. Yeah. Right, I see. Do you know, I didn't notice that. Mine didn't until I was on issue 5 and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> There's been one of these on every cover. Yeah. Very good. 
Uh, it was written and drawn by James Stoko, with color assist from Heather Breckel and edited by Bobby Kerno. Mm-hmm. Japan, 1954. Lieutenant Ota Murakami remembers the first time he encountered the beast known as Godzilla. He was sitting on a tank in the streets of Shinagawa looking for adventure. With smoke covering the streets and fire raging in the harbour, HQ advised him to expect bad weather. A blast of blue heat strikes down around the block and a group of three tanks ready themselves. Following the blast is a huge clawed foot belonging to a giant reptilian beast. The beast destroys the block as it walks past, not noticing the tanks watching below. That is until Ota and the group open fire on it, which attracts its attention on a nuclear blast that destroys all but Ota's tank as he drives away. His tank crashes into a building and Ota falls off. Kentaro, the driver, radios HQ and finds out that the beast is heading towards civilians and, with no other squad left to protect them, Ota and Kentaro head off to rescue them. The tank barely makes it to the large group of fleeing civilians before the monster does and fires at it to distract it from the group. The tank continues shooting whilst avoiding nuclear blasts until it shoots a building down on top of them. They move out of the way just in time as the car engine cuts out. However, the monster emerges from the wreckage and closes on them. Over the radio, HQ tells them that an artillery barrage is inbound and Kentaro gets the tank moving again. From a safe distance, the two watch the monster walk into the ocean. Later, the two would break out of hospital to see the military kill what the papers were calling Godzilla with an experimental bomb in the ocean. Months later, the two are handed a special assignment after a new or reanimated Godzilla had been spotted. Their job is to test new types of weaponry on the monster and Ota agrees. Kentaro reluctantly agrees out of pressure. The colonel giving them the mission welcomes them to the AMF, the anti-megalosaurus force, and walks away. I love that name. The anti-megalosaurus force. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Going through the entire comic, I thought it was hysterical. We went for the AMF. What does that mean? Doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the date and location implies that this issue takes place during the first movie. I was going to ask you about that. Does this work within Toho continuity? I presume the Godzilla films have a continuity. Somewhat. Somewhat. Yeah. Right, okay. I'm just going to leave it there. Then. Yeah, yeah. No, this this series creates continuity. So if you've never seen the movies before, the the, the stories work well within movies. Right. Like the next issue will be um, Godzilla raids again. Right. And so on. Um, the one later on will be Godzilla versus um, Gigan. Right. So these take place around some of the movies. Some of the locations are different. Right. Like the next one isn't based in Vietnam. Right. Um, but when we the the main bad guy in it he does create continuity that is missing from the movies right so it works well on its own and as an adaptation yeah I burying the lead I loved this yeah that was fantastic but we'll get to that later on Uh, one of the things that immediately struck me when I was reading it is just how good the art was it's a very clever mixture of manga and traditional comics art. I have no idea who James Stoko. Is that right? I think. I have no idea who he is, but he's very much in the vein of the '80s writer artist. Mm. Again, he seems to be colouring his work as well. And a colourist isn't mentioned. You've got colour assists. So the implication, to me, though, anyway, is that he colours a lot of his own work, and she's just been helping him. Yeah, I could be wrong. It's just a guess. Uh, it's very good. 
I think it's the the artwork throughout the entire issue is brilliant. There's a lot of Jeff Darrow in it. There was somebody else as well that came to me the other day and I didn't write it down. Hmm. Another one of those artists who's lots of detail. It reminded me a bit of the guy who did Akira. Yes! I was thinking of that. The manga stuff does remind you of the Akira stuff. Yeah. It's it's exceptional. I thought the art was brilliant. I like the, the uh, destroyed Tokyo Tower. On page one? On page one. And on page two, the introduced the theme that every issue will have, where it's a map of where Godzilla is, but... It's and, and where he's been. ...integrated into the art. Yeah. It's excellent, it's very good. The artwork's fantastic. Yeah, uh, also on that page, on the last panel, you can see Godzilla hiding in the smoke. Yes, you can, you can just see those funny spikes on his back, can't you? Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. I did the good use of cinematic technique throughout the whole opening sequence. We start at a wide-angle shot of Sinigawa, and then it zooms down into the mess that the city is before stopping in front of a tank, where our hero, in a great touch, is sat just almost at peace having a fag. Mm. Which I thought was was quite nice. It's the, funny reading this in hindsight, seeing how young he is initially. Yeah, he does. They do an excellent job of that, don't they? Yeah. Of aging him. So by the time he gets to the last issue, he's he's gnarly well, and skinny. Well, not just in looks, but how he acts. Yeah. His coffin as well. Yes, I, I was. I thought that was a really subtle touch. Yeah. How his smoking gets worse. His smoker's cough gets worse and worse as the series progresses. Mm. I thought that was brilliant. The final panel on page two. Were um, what's his name? Ota. Ota. Just sits there and watches as the Godzilla beam or breath or radiation breath or whatever it is shooting through the top of the building, cleaving the top off, is very reminiscent of a similar scene in the 1953 adaptation of War of the Worlds. Yeah. Where the, the aliens blast and the top of the building falls down. Which I thought, I liked that. I thought that was really cool. Because mm. it is a nod to alien invasion movies. Well, yeah. technically, Godzilla's not an alien. No. But I, I liked it. I liked it a great deal. Page three, we get the manga influence, is which is very heavy in two instances in this story. The first is on this page, where amidst the hyper-realism of the buildings and the carnage, and I know this is going to sound silly, Godzilla, who we still haven't seen in full, the drawings of the men is particularly manga. They have huge eyes, mm. and those cartoony mouths that we used to see in Battle of the Planets and Robotech, and they have those lines on the cheeks, underneath their eyes, yeah. like they used to have in those cartoons. The use of manga is something that sometimes irks me. But it's act here, because it's a Japanese comic about a Japanese subject mm. matter. So, Godzilla is probably the godfather of the Japanese comics movement. So to see the more cartoony approach alongside this very realistic depiction of backgrounds and falling buildings was an interesting juxtaposition that worked. And when you're talking about art, you've always got to use the word juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was quite good. You finally get a full introduction to Godzilla, which is a two-page splash, as you would expect. Mm. Uh, which is just exceptional. It's a fantastic piece of art. I like how Godzilla's growling. And if you look in the sound effect of his breath... Sorry, if you look in his breath, there is a sound effect, though. Yeah. There is, like, a, a version of... In the, yeah, well, whatever noise it is that he makes. I thought that was really good. Very, very good opening to mm. this comic. I really did like it. It's one of the few times they've done a cinematic comic that is actually cinematic. You can actually see this in your head yeah. on a movie screen. Very well done. Excellent. I'm very impressed with it. And Godzilla's size is shown really well as well, which it will be for the rest of the series. I mean, what's really good about this is how, because we're from the character's point of view, 
Godzilla is really, really big. Yeah. Like, in the last panel, we only see his leg. Yeah, well, that's... They've built up to this really good reveal. Yeah. Where you've only... You saw the back of his spine, and then you saw his foot. Mm. And you've essentially only seen all the damage that he's wrought. And then finally, on this double-page spread, you get a full shot of him. And he dwarfs everything around him. Even though you, you already know what he looks like. Yeah. Well, yeah, but... still... A pretty dark My animal. image of Godzilla is the guy in the costume. So to actually <laughs> see him depicted as a really scurry, huge monster yeah. was very effective. Well, Hannibal's just going to open the little thing now. Yeah. <laughs> Hannibal Smith's in there. <laughs> yeah. Very funny. Uh, <coughs> we can see on this page that the trains are smaller than his toe claws. Yeah. And that um, he's taller than every building on the panel. He's also very bulky here. Um, but his size is always inconsistent. What, from film to film? Well, even in one film, yeah. Right. They have right. said, whilst we were making the first film, his appearance is so inconsistent just because they want to change his size depending on what they're trying to convey in the scene. Or right. Trying to show how much damage or how big he is. Right, okay. Yeah, I loved it. I thought this was an exceptionally well done reveal. You get to pages six and seven. And there's a great feeling of Godzilla just being this lumbering, slow-moving creature that can afford to be slow-moving and lumbering. What can yeah. hurt him? Nothing's going to stop him. It's an excellent opening action sequence. It starts your, your story in the midst of the action. You're introduced to all of your characters and you, you're starting off your story with Godzilla doing the stuff you want to see Godzilla yeah. doing. None of this wasting, wasting 50 minutes telling his bloody origin. Mm. You're straight into the middle of the action. And it's exceptionally well done. Very good. One of the things with it as well is you're following the character, so you don't need an origin because he doesn't know his origin. <laughs> That's true. Um, do they, they make guesses at what his origin is throughout the story, don't they? Yeah. But they don't actually confirm whether this is true or not. Mm. Which I thought was quite good. I quite like that. It's going back to the old Wolverine thing. Yeah. Uh, the chase scene in pages 10 and 11 is really well drawn, um, as Godzilla is always shown in the distance. And even though he's far behind, you can see his size. Yeah. He's still huge, even though he's far away. Yeah. So you've not got that, that old um, Father Ted gag. <laughs> yeah. Near. Far <laughs> away. away. Small. <laughs> Far away, he's still far away, yet he's still bigger than everything yeah. else. And he, even though he's, you know, no one's interacting with him, he's not doing anything. He's just in the background. Yeah, he's just chasing around, he's just <laughs> stomping around, isn't he? As everyone tries to get out of his way. I quite, it's, it's an exceptionally good opening. The early part of this story is all action. It feels like the opening of a movie. It's proper cinematic storytelling. It flows magnificently well one of the things we've complained about before with licensed comics when we did Metal Gear was that the art in and of itself wasn't bad but it wasn't sequential storytelling I would look at one panel and then look at the next panel and go what the hell's going on here Mm. and not have any idea what the guy was drawing but the sequential storytelling in this is brilliant and it moves along at a real steady clip then there's the trope of the plucky military men and the last men standing and all that stands between Tokyo and Godzilla and distracting him while civilians get clear and all of that stuff. But it's a great beginning to, to this story. It's absolutely fantastic. It's mostly just one huge action scene. Yeah. Huge action. <laughs> Is it related to Hugh Jackman? But um, 
that's the, it's a Godzilla story yeah it's a Godzilla story it's what you want from a Godzilla story yeah. if they'd all been sat around talking <laughs> about how they've just seen Godzilla stomping through Tokyo you'd be sat there going yeah can you not show us yeah Godzilla stomping through Tokyo it's great absolutely fantastic and then you get to page 21 Murakami and Yoshihara being hired to be the monster hunters is actually a really funny scene where they first meet Colonel Schooler, mm. who will go through most of the rest of the issues with them, uh, which leads neatly into next issue. But I did like, I loved this bit. I thought this was, was hysterical. Where uh, Schuler tells him experimental weapons, blah, 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 Godzilla, blah, 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 even the Ruskies think are getting involved in it blah 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 and he says I guess there's nothing quite brings people together like giant irradiate, irrad- irradiated lizards what do you need from us sir your butt's in the seats firing the big guns we've got enough scientists to fill a university ready to churn out all kinds of new toys but I need soldiers to test them in the field of course we really don't know what will pierce Godzilla's hide until we start shooting at it so what do you say boys you want to be monster hunters and his mate's like oh, well um, that's really exciting and thanks for the offer but I was thinking of washing out you know I'll be like just not for me maybe I'll open a restaurant who knows expand my horizons and then Murakami just says I'll do it yeah and his mate's like oh god alright I'm in as well and it was really well done and it was a really good little funny mm. comedy moment and following the relationship between these two for the next four issues yeah. was really good and it was a really good piece of character development it was great it was an absolutely fantastic first issue it's action packed funny as hell and the art is just gorgeous there's not a lot of character development merely the beginning of Murakami's relationship and presumably obsession with Godzilla. And when I was first reading it, I was suspecting that we may get a Moby Dick riff here. Yeah. But there's a reason people keep ripping Moby Dick off. It's because it's a very good idea. It really is Moby Dick in the last issue. Yes. Yeah. But, no, it was exceptionally good. And one of the things I liked about the first issue is how um, they weren't part of killing Godzilla. No. They weren't really it, nothing. It, to do. it was just happening it around happened, them, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. They weren't out there getting at him. He just. So is that the first time he'd showed up? Yeah. Right. Okay. Fair enough. The second issue uh, of Half Century War. Yes. Uh, came out in September 2012 with a cover of Godzilla fighting uh, the American army in Vietnam. The variant cover by Sheldon Vella shows an American soldier in the foreground whilst Godzilla and Anguirus fight in the background. Again, it's another insanely detailed and eye-catching cover. This time, Godzilla does not seem to be in a densely populated town, rather in a jungle. And this would indeed be true as the story progressed. Great cover. Mm -hmm. Again, good sense of scale of how big Godzilla is, where again, all the men are just down at the bottom in their army tanks, and the tanks are tiny compared to Godzilla. And you've even got a couple of fighter jets flying around him. Yeah. Showing, again, the scale of how big he is. It looks like they're bombing him as well. Mm. There's lots of uh, bombing going on there. Yeah. That he's just shrugging off. (laughs) Yeah. Because he's Godzilla. Mm. Vietnam, 1967. After 13 years of Godzilla appearing close to the Japanese mainland, the monster appeared off the coast of China and worked his way into a battle-weary Vietnam. The AMF attack him, but his attention is focused on walking to an unknown location. A helicopter drops Ota at the AMF base and informs Kentaro and Colonel Schuler, 
Godzilla won't budge and it and will be on them soon. However, they can't move any further north for any longer time because of the war going on. The American general in charge of the soldiers fighting in the war is predicted that Godzilla's direction will lead into a valley that is surrounded by sludge that he's already had covered with bombs. Once he's there, they'll detonate the bombs. However, Schooler tries to tell him that the bombs won't work, but isn't heard out. As the general walks away, Doc Randall, a Scottish deep core mining scientist who the AMF had stolen to help them create weapons to fight Godzilla, arrives and informs them that his latest weapon is ready. That weapon is a line of tanks with turrets on the roof that he calls the Mazers, that are capable of shooting through half a mile of granite. Schooler tells Doc and Kentaro to head back to the ridge before the earth begins to shake. They pass it off as an American bombing run and continue. Schooler asks Ota why he thinks Godzilla has suddenly appeared in the south, and he says that he doesn't know. Something else that's been bugging him is that once Godzilla reached Hanoi, he stayed on a, b- on a beeline straight to Saigon, not even going around the mountains almost as if he's chasing something. Schooler tells Ota to trust the hunch he has, and then leaves in a helicopter. Ota also leaves just as Godzilla reaches the base. Godzilla steps on a pile of explosives and is then attacked by choppers and jets. Doc powers his mazes and fires all six of them at him, hitting the monster in the eye with one of them. As they celebrate, Viet Cong hurry out of spider holes and run away. Doc and Kentaro panic as the ground starts shaking and another kaiju claws its way out from being the ground. Ken and Doc tell Ota, who's in a helicopter, that they're okay and run away from the new monster. The two monsters lock eyes and charge towards each other. As they fight, Doc tells Ota that only two mazes are operational, and so Ota tells him to wait until the monsters wear each other down before firing. Godzilla then beats the new monster and throws him to the side. The AMF wait for Godzilla to put him down with a nuclear blast before they shoot the mazes, but before Godzilla can fire, an American bombing run flies through and carpet bombs the area. After the smoke clears, the AMF see the new monster digging its way underground, and Godzilla turn back around to Saigon. Doc tells Ota that he can't get a shot at him with the mazes, but Godzilla stops and turns to the ocean. Ota tells Skula that Godzilla is heading back home, and is told that there's a bigger problem than Godzilla, as he stands in a crashed cargo jet in front of a homing beacon that he has shot multiple times. Dun dun dun! Uh, page one of this, I love that splash page. Yeah. I have no idea why I love that splash page. All it is, is a shot of a soldier walking away from us with a Godzilla patch on his back carrying a bazooka, smoking. But the way his helmet is tilted on his head and the colouring, again, lots of deep reds. Uh, I just It just spoke to me for some reason. It's I thought that was a fantastic country, piece of art. Yes. that's It's very evocative of any number of those Vietnam War films yeah. that you saw, like Platoon or Full Metal Jacket or any of them. Creedence Clearwater playing. Yeah, Creedence Clearwater. <laughs> this James Stoku guy is really good. Yeah. He's I've never read anything else. No, I've known nothing about him. And already, just from this one comic, I'm like, he's fantastic. Mm. And we'll have to have a look at what else he's done. Speaking of, the, the opening of this is the opening of every Vietnam movie you've ever seen. Helicopters. Huey helicopters flying over the Vietnamese jungles. Where are the doors when you need them? <laughs> yeah. Just when you want uh, a bit of Jim Morrison. That, um, that's the th- on this page, we see the map again, but the ocean around... 
Vietnam is the sky yeah. around the rest of the page. It's an, it's, it's an excellent opening splash page following on from the opening splash page. Yeah. So I suppose you could argue that you've got two of them, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's still really very well done. And then we get another fantastic two-page spread, which I adored. Murakami's a lot more battle-weary here than he was in the last story. And I love that there's a military organisation dedicated to hunting Godzilla, which is cool. Godzilla's size is again depicted quite naturally. You see him across the splash page. It's not a two-page splash. There are panels across the page going across the top of pages two and three. But the bottom is one big panel of Godzilla moving from right to left with the Huey helicopters behind him bombing him when they can. What's interesting about that panel is that we see how different this Godzilla is from the one in the last issue. There's not much there, but in the last issue we stood upright. And in this one, he's hunched over. Right, is that deliberate? It is could that a be. homage to something? Uh, it could be, but... There is, they did imply that this is a different Godzilla than the one in the last issue. Right. Because the one in the last issue died, and then at the end, Schooler tells them that the new one has been spotted. Oh, I didn't get that. I thought that it was the same guy. No, they kill... They say they broke out hospital to see them kill Godzilla. Because the whole point of this is that it's Murakami tracking Godzilla throughout the entire five-issue miniseries across five decades. Mm. So I didn't get that they'd kill... If they killed this Godzilla, then they know how to kill him. Well, the movie... The, the first movie ends with them killing him. And right. so when Godzilla reads again, it's a clone or a different Godzilla. Right, I got that they thought that this was all over when they finally finished him off, but that they were mistaken, and he comes back later on. So you're saying that this is a different... Because he actually says in the dialogue in issue one, maybe it's a different Godzilla, yeah. maybe he just got better, it doesn't matter. Alright, so I took it as it is the same Godzilla. I mean, that way you can say it's a different one or whatever, but right. there's the thing like he says, alter, that doesn't matter to him. It's yeah. Like, so, like he says, it doesn't matter which one you go through. Yeah. I presumed it was the same Godzilla. You've gone with the idea that it's a different Godzilla. Mm. Alright, fair enough. But So, neither one of us are wrong based on the dialogue in the story. Yeah. Right, okay, fair enough. I don't mind that. Mm. Um, one of the things I really do love about this is Ota's AMF bandana. And I also really like the monster masher jackets they all have. Well, I, lo- I love that this is kind of like S.H.I.E.L.D. or Shadow in yeah. UFO, in that it's supposed to be this secret organisation. They have the logo <laughs> yeah. on everything. Yeah. Yeah, really secret. Now, I don't, yeah, <laughs> I don't know that um, the AMF is a secret organisation. I mean, it's not like they could keep Godzilla a secret. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I, I did like that they have the patches. I thought that was really good. I love the idea of him stealing an engineer from Scotland. Yeah. Oh, it was quite funny. I like that a lot. It's like, um, like Scotty. Mm. They've nicked, a Scot- <laughs> yeah. nicked their own version of Scotty. And everything that he builds has a drill on it. <laughs> yeah. Which, even if it's completely <laughs> unnecessary, they've put a drill on it. So mm. I loved it. I thought this was pretty good. Um, there's also a really neat foreshadowing on page six. Well, the ground rumbles, yeah. and they just pass it off as a bombing on board. It actually is they're standing on top of another monster. Yeah, which they will do as we go along. We get more and more monsters coming into the story. Mm. Uh, what was the other monster? The other mon- monster was uh, Anguirus, right? Who first appeared in Godzilla Raids again, <laughs> the second Godzilla movie, as Angelus right. in 1955. Right. Okay. Anguirus was the first kaiju to oppose Godzilla, and has been allies with him. 
from that film onwards until Final Wars. Right, so they're introducing all parts of the lore yeah. throughout this five issue, so it's very well researched. Mm. Alright, fair enough. I do love the middle section. The middle section of this is just another action sequence that's completely wordless where Godzilla's attacked by the army and then the other monster shows up. Yeah. And they're all like, what the hell is that? That is a really detailed page. Yeah, you get another double page splash of Aguirus. Anguirus. Anguirus. Well, the, the, the mo- Anguirus literally is the ground, so he's got trees on yeah. it, along with these spikes in his you, armor. You've got the implication he's been buried under there for years undisturbed, mm. and now he's like, what's going on? I'm asleep. <laughs> yeah. He looks like a giant tortoise. Well, in Final Wars, there's a great scene where it's not the AMF, but it's essentially the same thing, and they're right. all super powered and all the best of the best of the best, so. Right. And they're the fighting it, and there's just one guy. The best line in the entire film is, like, let's kill this armadillo. <laughs> well, he totally does look like an armadillo. Yeah, I'll go with that. I thought that was quite good. Uh, there's another excellent wordless fight scene. Uh, essentially this issue is two big fight scenes yeah. before the conclusion of the issue but again I thoroughly enjoyed it I like that it's going to span a certain amount of time and the best thing about comics better than film or TV is that they can do this really well I never buy it in a TV show or a film when they try and do a generational story and they have different actors portraying the same characters at different times in their life I never buy it you never go it's the same guy you go oh right they've changed the actor Yeah. and it kind of takes you out of the, 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 the moment and there's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Q ages Wesley mm. by ten years and the producers thought Wesley would turn into some bland male model mannequin who spends four hours a day in the gym which is so not what Will Wheaton would actually turn out to grow up like. Yeah. So it's just laughable now. And I never bought it when he grew up to be Richard Dreyfus either. Comics can do this kind of multi-generational, multi-era story really well. And this is amping up really nicely. The fight scene between the two monsters at the end is great. And then the bombing run at the end of it is also fantastic. It's, it's a great issue. Mm, there is the neat little thing where we don't know what the machine is on the last pages yet. No, that's a big cliffhanger ending. But him shooting that is what makes Godzilla stop and turn back round to the ocean. Right. So that's what was attracting Godzilla. We will find out, Which, yeah. And we will find out that that is the case yeah. later on in the story. And that's also a really good thing with this, is that there are questions that are answered later. Yeah, and it, it sets things up for you. And it's never, like, proper cliffhanger material. It's just little things that will go on yeah. to... It's the ending of this issue, and if you carry on reading, that will be explained. But if you don't, well, all right, it, well, it shooting that yeah. led to Godzilla leaving. Okay, fair enough. Mm. Maybe it was giving him an headache. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, what exactly does a homing beacon do? Just yeah. make you want to find out where your headache's coming from. Yeah, you'll follow it and then smash it, presumably. Yeah. So they did Godzilla a favour, really. Mm. Uh, issue three was released in October 2012, again with two covers. Godzilla and Hedora yeah. duke it out on the cover to great effect. Again, there's a level of detail to this that evokes Jeff Darrow. And again, the reddish colour scheme sets off the action nicely, given the sheer amount of destruction Godzilla causes. One has to wonder how Japan affords to keep rebuilding. Because mm. that's never mentioned, is it? No, well that's um, one of the... Themes in Pacific Rim. Is it the only reason that the the monsters, the, the robots in Pacific Rim exist, is because 
like Japan starts going, we're just going to keep getting attacked. Why don't we do something about it? We don't have to rebuild. We just buy robots. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Yeah. The second cover by Brandon Graham shows the AMF lined up in the foreground as the monsters march in the background. I've never seen it. It's quite an experimental <laughs> cover, actually. Is it? Yeah. Ghana, 1975. An older, more rugged Ota sits in the ruins of a hotel, as behind him, Rodan, Batra, Mengalon, Humonga, Mothra, Ebira and Hedora fight in the smoking ruins of what was once Ghana. After Anguirus in Vietnam, more and more kaiju appeared, but something else was discovered in Vietnam too. What Skula found at the end of the last issue was a psionic transmitter. That had been made to scramble Godzilla's head and repel him from populated areas, but after its field testing failed, it was put out of commission. After this, American scientist Dr. Deverick, creator of the device, disappeared with the transmitter and his research notes. The conclusion the AMF came to was that Deverick had weaponized the transmitter to attract Godzilla rather than repel it, and in doing so, woke up every kaiju on Earth. The AMF had created several teams dedicated to one kaiju, which were all situated in the Ghana Hotel, watching the monsters battle. As the teams discuss how they're all out of their depth, Skula located a building on the other side of the city that he believes is where another transmitter is. The teams pile into a Volkswagen and avoid the monsters battling before jumping through Hedora and landing on the van's side. They climb out and enter the building. As they head down to the basement, they hear voices from guards. The team take the guards down and enter the room where they stood in front of it. And enter the room that they were standing in front of. Inside, they see Deverick and his transmitter stood in front of cameras, pitching his device to the highest bidder. The team confront Deverick, but he turns the transmitter up to 11, and <laughs> attracting all the monsters in the area, and runs away. Rather than chase him, the AMF decide to use a tunnel to escape. They run with the monsters literally on top of them, and a nuclear blast from Godzilla makes the rubble fall and traps Skula. Ota turns back to rescue him, and Skula tells Ota to look after the AMF now, and the constant march of the monsters crushes him under the debris. The team managed to escape, but not without a cost. Um, as for the monsters, well, after the little first page, which is... Yeah, there's, a, there's another splash page that essentially is just the credits that I presume they can cut off in the trade, uh, so that the issues just flow straight into one nice, or the other. like, posters. But they're good pieces of art. This one is just his, his military helmet, one of those hard helmets that you see all the time. I served my time in hell, Ghana, May 1975, and it's an AMF helmet. And I love that there's a pack of cigarettes just tucked into, yeah. his, into his helmet. It's a good piece, again, it's a good piece of art. Mm. Absolutely fantastic piece of artwork. Um, all the monsters are now, Hedora, who first appeared in Godzilla vs. Hedora in 1971, and is a monster from outer space that fed on pollution. Rodan appeared in Toho's 1956 film Rodan, and is of a dinosaur design similar to Godzilla and Anguirus. Batra appeared in Godzilla vs. Mothra, the battle for Earth, and is the same species as Mothra. Megalon first appeared in Godzilla vs. Megalon in 1973. Kumonga appeared in Son of Godzilla, and was just a normal spider that grew due to a failed weather experiment. Mothra first appeared in 1961's Mothra, and is a giant lepidopter. And Abira first appeared in 1966, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. Very well done. Mm. Okay. I, I didn't research on this. Yeah, you've yeah, done very well, because I didn't know any of these people. I, I think I saw Godzilla vs. Mothra. Yeah. That one sounds vaguely familiar from watching him as a kid. And Godzilla vs. Mecha Godzilla sounds vaguely <laughs> yeah. familiar as well. Well, 
I, I, the first one I saw was Final Wars, which is the so last one. So you saw one. the last one first? Yeah. Excellent, good. It, it doesn't matter, it's Godzilla. Though, right, fair enough. And every, like, mostly, almost every single monster is in that film, so I knew of uh, almost all of them because of that film. Right, okay, fair enough. Um, Dr. Deverick, the, the main villain... Uh, he's not really a villain. He's more. But I get, yeah, in the he's, the, he's a central protagonist rather than a, a villain. Yeah, in the the true sense of the word. Mm. But, yeah, um, was created for the comic, and his inclusion creates a neat little bit of continuity that gives reasons why all these monsters just appear. Yeah, because he's building that thing that attracts them. Yeah, yeah. But in, in the films, he just. Appear, Godzilla fights them. And right, Godzilla shows up and has a fight. Yeah, yeah. Right, fair enough. The chase through the streets of Ghana in the little hippie VW van was really cool. I love them avoiding Godzilla's radioactive breath and leaping right through Hedora. Mm. Like they jump the van yeah. through the monster. It's because he's just pollution. Yeah, so it, it, that was really, really fresh mm. and exciting. And uh, any time you jump a vehicle, <laughs> I'm there. I'm down with it. I wanted that. Love that they do do a little yeah. as they jump the van. So that that was really cool. All the characters, despite my criticism at the first one, there wasn't a lot of character development in the first issue. Over the three issues so far, they have actually come become very well drawn characters. Though the AMF have suffered casualties and injuries, Murakami now only has one eye. They still seem up for battle. I don't think he only has one eye because he has both of them later on. Oh right, so he's just got—he's wearing an eye patch here because his eye's been hurt. Yeah. Right. Okay. So he's not turning into Nick Fury. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Agents Obviously, of AMF. Yes, agents of AMF. That's a, that'd be a good TV show, <laughs> wouldn't it? Just following Godzilla around the world—that'd be quite cool. Uh, they all seem up for the battle. Even though they've been fighting for their entire life, and there's still there's a feeling of melancholia to them, mm. like this is never going to be over. But there's a part of them that's like I don't care. I like the guy in the radiation suit. Which one? He Which doesn't one? have a single line. Like they're in the very oh line. yeah, there's a guy in the radiation suit in the back. You don't know who he is. He's just there. I love the the seventies lingo to this one. Righteous. <laughs> yeah. And the guy with the afro. Yeah. There's a guy with a huge afro, which is hysterically funny. <laughs> there's a neat little character bit. The oh, art in that 14. scene is really good. Just as they're all driving, there's huge monsters in the background just fighting. Yeah, just minding their own business, fighting with each yeah, other. Yeah, which I thought was quite good. I, li- I do like there's a there's a neat little character bit on page fourteen when none of the cast are armed, as bringing a gun. Into, I just noticed when they jump through the yeah, big monster, they do sing the doors. <laughs> so there's the doors when you need them. I want to say page fourteen. Colonel Shula says to them. Have you brought your arms? Mm. And they're all like, I never bring a gun to a Godzilla fight. What's the point? <laughs> Which is a valid, yeah. a valid point. This leads to Colonel Schluna having the funniest line in the issue. Sometimes I wonder about this crack team I've assembled. Mm. And I love the other guy. Oh, man, I don't believe in those things. He's, <laughs> he's always like the hippie. And the guy in the radiation suit is just like, huh? A gun? What, what for? Against Godzilla? What's the point of that? So that was a, that was a very funny little moment. And then you get Devaruch's psionic device, which means the monsters are converging on this location and not all the team make it out alive when the building comes down around Shula's neck. Just before that, I do like how the dial on the device 
goes up to chaos. <laughs> uh, no, the bottom panel. Yeah. The master control foot goes all the way up to chaos. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course it would. Yeah. Wouldn't it? That makes perfect sense. Um, this was much more expository, with Murakami filling us in on a lot of what has happened in the intervening tel- ten years. Although it's cool to see all the monsters fighting together. Well, I think that's why they put all the monsters fighting, just to because it was cool. you from the... Uh, the exposition yeah. dialogue. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's, it's not a bad issue. By any stretch of the imagination, the art is, as usual, great. And it's quite a wise decision to see this through the eyes of the human characters as it leaves the monsters enigmatic and unpredictable. It's very good, this. I'm Mm. I'm actually surprised by how much I'm enjoying it. Issue 4 came out on December 2012 uh, with a month's delay. Why? I I don't know. This this became a problem, actually. Because as as I was saying, I I was waiting for them all. So when it became two months' wait for issue 4 and then another few more months wait for issue five. Right. Well, mm. I suppose you can argue that the art is very detailed, but if yeah. it's a five-issue miniseries, what was wrong with them waiting till issue five was done mm. before they started soliciting it? I noticed you just looked at the little... I did look at the little two <laughs> things in the corner. I'd, I'd not noticed that, but they're really cool. Uh, the cover is... The main cover is Godzilla facing off against the crystalline entity from Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> it totally is! That's what it is. yeah. Uh, the variant by John Kant shows Mecha Godzilla in front of the giant crystal ship. Oh, is, is, that, is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> the crystalline entity, <laughs> which was one of the worst villains in Star Trek. Bombay, 1987. Godzilla was on another rampage, and Ota and Kentaro watching from a van. After the death of Schooler and several failures of the AMF, the teams were disbanded and those that stayed became damage control and predicted the monsters' next appearances. However, new approaches were being taken and, due to Oto and Kentaro's surprise, the army dump a huge crate that opens up to show Mecha Godzilla. As the two fight, Oto lights up a cigarette inside the van before Kentaro kicks him out. Whilst outside, Oto spots Deverick in the crowds and pursues. He calls Ken and follows Deverick into an empty building where he sees him make a deal with two men in suits. After they walk away, Ota jumps on Deverick before spotting the giant transmitter that, according to Deverick, is roughly 1,000 times more potent than the last models. Ken and the AMF soldiers bust in, but before the transmitter can be shut down, the giant crystalline entity (laughs) descends onto the city, dropping shards below. The ship crashes and out of it comes another Godzilla, Space Godzilla. (laughs) Space Godzilla attacks Mechagodzilla and shuts it down before turning to Godzilla. Godzilla fires a nuclear blast that Space Godzilla blocks, which confuses both Godzilla and Ota. Ota and Kentaro decide to take Mechagodzilla for themselves and pilot it so that they head into the van. And pilot it so they head to the van. On the way there, they come to the conclusion that the chunk of crystal that carried Space Godzilla here is also powering it, so they decide to use Mecha Godzilla to destroy it. When they arrive at the downed Mecha, they rescue the pilot before Ota makes his way into the cockpit. Despite it being offline, Ota manages to get it working again and fires rocket to the chunk of crystal, which causes Space Godzilla to lose his power. With one final nuclear blast, Godzilla finishes off Space Godzilla. As Godzilla walks away, Ota realises that Deverick opened up a whole new world of possibilities and he would need all the allies he could get. Uh, yeah. Um, I love the splash page of this one as well. Again, it's just the credits, so you could cut it out in a collection. Well, again, it foreshadows 
the crystalline entity. Yeah, it's the crystalline entity just falling to Earth from space. It's very reminiscent of the opening of The Thing. Yeah. Isn't it? It's very similar to the opening of The Thing, which was echoed in the opening to Predator. Yeah. A couple of years later. So it's that, basically. Lovely listener, but it's brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, how old is Godzilla? How long does he live? Well, he is a prehistoric monster. Right. So, a long time. Right. Because uh, he doesn't thing- seem to get any older. Is there the thing with, is it a different Godzilla than the one in the last issue? Right, see, I, I didn't consider that at all until you've just pointed it out, because with that line of dialogue, is it the same guy, is it a different Godzilla, does it really matter? I just assumed yeah. it was the same one. What are the odds that there's two of them? <laughs> yeah. Was my thinking. I mean, so, the, the thing is, um, how can you tell if all five issues had the same Godzilla? What if it was a different Godzilla every time? I think that takes away from the story. Yeah. Because it's Murakami tracking down his white whale. But then on the flip side of that is, it doesn't matter to him whether they're different ones. No, it's still Godzilla. Yeah. Isn't it? And ultimately how it will turn out in issue five, he ends up helping him. Mm. So that that was quite good. There's an utterly wonderful two-page splash of Godzilla again, destroying lots of buildings and presumably killing numerous civilians and it probably costing a lot of money to fix. <laughs> uh, I do love the scale of this one. How Godzilla is huge in the left-hand side of the comic, blasting his radioactive breath across two pages where we see minuscule people fleeing an AMF mystery machine dwarfed by the mighty monster. It's great, isn't it? Mm. Again, page one shows the area. There's a map of the area where they are again, 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 again. Uh, you can trace Godzilla's path by the area yeah. of red where he has destroyed everything in that his path. never gets old. It's been in every single yeah, issue. Yeah, every single issue has shown Godzilla's path of destruction. It's so, it's so detailed as well. It's brilliant. It's an absolute... I don't know who James Stokoe is, but I'm very interested in seeing what else he's done. Yeah. Because this was magnificent. Uh, page seven. Do you know, I let out a little cheer when I saw <laughs> Mechagodzilla because I remembered him. I remembered who he was. Mechagodzilla was brilliant. Mm. Uh, Godzilla uh, 1 was created as a weapon by an ape-like alien race from a third planet from a black hole. It appeared in Godzilla vs. Godzilla, and then Terror of Mechagodzilla. Godzilla 2 was created by the United Nations Godzilla Countermeasures Center of course. <laughs> using scrapped pieces of Mecha King Ghidorah in Godzilla vs. Godzilla 2. And this is probably this is probably the same Mechagodzilla shown in this issue, without it being made from Mecha King Ghidorah. Right. Um, however, its appearance looks more like Mechagodzilla Three, aka Kiryu, which was a terrestrial Mecha in Godzilla against Mechagodzilla. So there was three of these. Yeah. There's a trilogy of Mechagodzilla. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Page eight. There's an excellent callback to a few issues ago with the reference to Dot Randall's obsession with drills mm. which I thought was great where they're asking him do you think do you think Dot Randall built that and he said is there a drill on it yeah. <laughs> which case yes he did there doesn't seem to be a drill on it no. or I didn't see one unless um, his turrets on either shoulder are the mazes that he made an issue to yeah they could be because we don't see him again do we no. so is the implication that the Scottish guys died at this point I'm not sure I do kind of like that how characters come and go yeah the Laura like decades apart from each other yeah, he may have just retired yeah, he, he, he seemed pretty old dead. in issue 2 he did. 30, 20 years ago yeah so it's possible he's died or it's possible he's just retired Deverick however looks exactly the same 
Yeah, Deverick doesn't age. Which is fair enough. Again, fair enough. Some people don't age. Mm. Ming Na was in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. yesterday. She does not look any different yeah. from when she was in ER. What, 15 years ago now that mm. she was in ER? Yet J. August Rist- Richards looks a lot older than when he was in Angel five years ago. Yeah. So uh, so some people just don't change much. Maybe so, that and you're less likely to recognise him if he is. Yeah, I mean, there's only so much that they want to change him up. I mean, I do like now that uh, Murakami wears those little half-moon glasses yeah. that people wear when they need to start wearing glasses to read. Mm. So there's a signifier there that he's getting older, which I thought was and quite he's, good. he's white hair. Yeah, and his hair's starting to go grey at the temples because he's a comic book <laughs> character. Did, did, was the, the drills thing, was that an in-joke for the films or something? I'm not sure. Right, okay, maybe it was just something for the comics then. Mm. Uh, Murakami goes through some interesting changes on page nine. He's starting to realise he has no life without Godzilla. Yeah. Which, whilst the Moby Dick obsession theme hasn't quite happened the way I thought it would when I started reading, there is still an element of obsession to Murakami and his relationship with Godzilla. Uh, Mecha Godzilla vs. Godzilla is awesome mm-hmm. even though we don't see enough of it no. I, I felt that we could have seen more of that because that was pretty damn cool and I love on page 11 that the Japanese have their own division of men in black <laughs> Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones Japanese division <laughs> yeah. I thought that was quite cool page 15 who is this other Godzilla uh, well the other Godzilla is Space Godzilla yeah and that paragraph in the synopsis was hilarious because I'm just saying Mecha Godzilla Godzilla versus Space Godzilla. Yes, yeah. So Space Godzilla came out of the crystalline entity. Yeah. Excellent. Good. Well, Space Godzilla is a heavily modified clone of Godzilla. Of that course, first he appeared. Did he eventually replace the real Godzilla <laughs> and take the name Ben Riley? I don't think he did. <laughs> if he did, there was a deal on Festo. <laughs> Uh, first appearing in Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. In the film, the characters hypothesized that Godzilla cells were somehow cast into space, fell into a black <laughs> hole, re-emerged, and mutated into a partially crystalline life form from a white hole. Did you know what's great about that? Go on. <laughs> That's perfectly plausible. <laughs> I can totally buy that. Yeah. Um, as to how his cells had entered space in the first place, the film offers two possibilities. Either cells from Godzilla's previous clone, Biolante, escaped Earth's orbit when she rose into space after battling Godzilla in the aptly named Godzilla vs. Biolante. Or, <laughs> Fair enough. Or Mothra just inadvertently carries the cells into space en route to deflecting a meteor headed for Earth in Godzilla and Mothra the Battle for Earth. So either one of those offers a, a reason as to how Godzilla's <laughs> yeah. cells fell through a black hole. And mutated into this. And mutated into space Godzilla, <laughs> yeah. who has a huge crystalline entity sticking out of his shoulders. The Japanese are nothing but literal. That's very true. That's, that, that is, that's, 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 I have no problem with that story, Pete. <laughs> okay. Cells of Godzilla <laughs> fell through a black hole to some alternate dimension where they re-evolved into space Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely fantastic. My suspension of disbelief <laughs> accepts that with no problem. You are in a story with giant monsters. Yes. <laughs> there comes a point, all right, throw your arms up and go, whatever. Whatever you're throwing at me, I accept it. Uh, I like Murakami's reasoning for destroying Mechagodzilla. Oh, space Godzilla. On, yeah, Space Godzilla, sorry, on, on page 19. You really want something that can kill Godzilla stomping around planet Earth? Mm. Better the devil you know, I suppose. Yeah. 
There was good reason to that. Yeah. I do like that he just goes into the, the big Mecha Godzilla. Hits the dashboard. Hits the dashboard like Han Solo and Millennium Falcon. And He's um, like, come on, damn you! Marcy McFly. Yeah, and it just starts working. <laughs> yeah. Come on. That would stretch a suspension of disbelief, would it? <laughs> but the fact that Space Godzilla's here, that's perfectly okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, so yeah. at this point, <laughs> just throw it all out. I know, people know how mechanics work, right? Yeah. People don't know how Godzilla cells will react to a black hole. That's true. I, 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 no, well, come on, it worked for Ansola, it works for Martin McFly, it worked for the Fonz. Yeah. I'm perfectly happy to accept that banging the panel of a very elaborate <laughs> piece of technology will make it work. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. You know, I found a picture um, that has loads of giant robots all lined up against each other on a chart and what it would take to build them in real life. Yeah. Because, you know, people like bringing fiction into real life. Yeah. Optimus Prime is tiny. He's only slightly bigger than the um, forklift trucking aliens. Oh, right, yeah. But the biggest one is the main one from Pacific Rim. And Mechagodzilla is about the size of the Pacific Rim's shin. Really? Yeah. Right. So, and apparently you'll need a, wet, a, a metal that's so light but durable at the same time. And the only one around is toxic. So that's not going to happen then? No. Right. Fair enough. Okay. Carry on, man. Yeah. Um, there's a great little panel on the last page of a planet yeah. with the silhouettes of King Ghidorah and what I assume to be Mothra, but... Because it looks more like Mothra than... Well, the planet's Jupiter. Yeah. But it looks more like Mothra than what it is in the next issue, Gigan. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's that neat little foreshadowing all the yeah, past issues they've, they've done through all the stories. So yeah. these have picked up Deverich's psionic device yeah. from all the way out in space. Turned up to chaos. Right. All right, fair enough. And the, he said it was a thousand times more potent. Yes, and, and, and indeed it was. Mm. Uh, this was another great issue. Sorry, lovely listener. Are we boring <laughs> you today with, with how much this is really good? All, all of our we-know-nothing-about shows. Have ended up being surprisingly enjoyable, haven't they? Every single one of them has been... There hasn't been one we've done where it was like, oh, God, I wish we hadn't done that. We have been on a positive streak for a while now. Yeah, well, this is the thing, isn't it? If, if current comics are not your bag... There are 70 odd years worth of comics out there that I'm sure there's something out there that you can enjoy. And this only finished a couple of months ago. This is. Yeah, well, yeah. maybe if, if New 52 had been to my taste, I wouldn't have read Conan. Yeah. So there is that. This, this was brilliant. This was a really surprisingly enjoyable series. There's no escaping the fact that every issue is pretty much the same. Yeah. But it's a winning formula. Mm. And it is handled exceptionally well. This is another issue that is infectious in its enjoyability level. We're seeing a more hardened and cynical Murakami who's even starting to feel sympathy for the monster he's been hunting all these years. And the feeling that as he's gotten older and other younger soldiers have come along that they may be the ones who ultimately take Godzilla out. He's a little bit jealous of that. Which we'll see later. Which we'll see in issue five, yeah. Mm. The art is still magnificent, sorry. Yeah. If I'm boring you. Uh, and I was really looking forward to reading issue five, but this was fantastic. You know what I do like, what, what's wrong about Ota changing? Yeah. Is, as the issues progress, okay, I was just thinking, would you not get bored of seeing Godzilla do all this? No, you never do, do you? But, on the other hand is, you can see how, in that last issue, even though Godzilla's fighting Mecha Godzilla, 
like Otis just out having a fight and he's just chilling about he's not even watching the fight yeah he he's doesn't just... care anymore yeah. excellent alright last issue issue 5 came out in February 2013 once again with two covers uh, the cover to the regular cover to issue number 5 is fantastic Godzilla emerges up from the depths 30 stories high <laughs> breathing fire his head in the sky upending aircraft carriers and other boats as he does so Thankfully, there is no Godzuki. Uh, it's, it's a very good cover, again. Yeah. Redundant in what we're saying, but it's <laughs> it's very good. The other by Simon Roy shows Godzilla face off against Gigan and King Ghidorah. All the credits for this issue are the same as the past four, but with the addition of Joseph Bergen III, who did the colours. Right, so is this when the, the dreaded deadline doom? This was two months after the last issue. Right, so the implication there is that James Stucco was doing his own colouring as well then. Yeah. Right, fair enough. Antarctica 2002. As an elderly Ota writes in his journal, Gigan and King Ghidorah wreak havoc in the distance. Nearing the end of his life, Ota has decided that if he can't kill Godzilla, then the least he can do is make sure that the monster knows he exists. Ota gets up and walks through several transmitters to where a new Mecha Godzilla that apparently features parts of the actual Godzilla is being stationed and meets Kem. They enter the barracks and greet the soldier who would be piloting the Mecha and fighting the Kaiju with the newly created Black Hole missile launcher if Ota and Ken hadn't put him off the task due to Ota deciding that this was his fight to finish. Godzilla shows up and so Ota prepares to enter Mecha Godzilla. After a little hiccup, he takes off as Ken waves goodbye to his old friend. Gigan and Ghidorah pummel Godzilla before Ota jumps in and knocks Gigan back with a few missiles and flies into Ghidorah. Ghidorah fights back and, spying his opportunity to strike, Godzilla grabs one of Ghidorah's necks as it fires its nuclear blast and aims it at Gigan. Ota helps Godzilla with a few rockets aimed at Ghidorah and, as the two stand, Godzilla looks at Ota and decides to work side by side with him. As Gigan tries to get back up, Godzilla and Mechagodzilla fire blast the monster. The countdown for the black hole launcher reaches zero, so Mechagodzilla flies at Gigan and Ghidorah, pushing them into the black hole. As the fight closes, Godzilla walks away. Ota, enraged at how Godzilla always walks away from him after all their fights, pushes the monster into the back of the black hole with him. Mechagodzilla falls into pieces around them into the black hole, and Ota and Godzilla look at each other and see each other off into the black hole after 48 years of fighting. Kentaro watches from the AMF barracks and finds Ota's journal, whilst in the distance, spikes emerge from the ocean. You did a really good job with the synopsis on these. Yeah, it was very good that I really enjoyed that uh, page one as we've already said many times James Stoko is a fantastic artist mm. I had never heard of him before this and I've just got to say the guy's phenomenal I love that the faces of the people and the comedy beats are very influenced by manga even though the manga hasn't really been my thing yet everything else is hyper realistic case in point the Antarctic that Murakami sat in here is absolutely stunning well realised, very well done Murakami sits and watches the sunrise over the mountains pondering his life and more importantly the end of his life and Godzilla's place in it all this time hunting someone who has no idea he's even alive the colouring is likewise exceptionally good I like that he's wearing Han Solo's jacket from Empire yeah. with the big fluffy hood on that first page is the implication of that Godzilla is tramped all over the world at this everywhere, point everywhere yeah. yeah, that's what I got for it 
the face of the earth has been changed forever. Godzilla's tromped all over everywhere mm. at this point. So they've pretty much destroyed huge chunks of the earth. It's all red. Yeah, everywhere's red. In fact, there isn't a map on this one. It's a shot of the globe. Yeah. So the entire planet... And there is no war on Earth now that has not felt the wrath of Godzilla. And it's called the end of the world. We don't get given a, a, a location like the last one. Yeah, there is no location like in the first four issues. The location is the planet. Mm. Which uh, is a lovely little touch. I thought that was really good. Gigan. Mm. Uh, first showed up in 1972's Godzilla vs. Gigan as a space monster. I love the titles of these films. <laughs> yeah. Who's he fighting this time? Rocket. Let's call this one Godzilla vs. Rocket. I would pay good money to see that fight. Godzilla vs. Rocket. <laughs> it's so tough. Hello, we rematch. Stop the fight! Stop the fight, he's eating my husband. <laughs> as Godzilla just picks Rocket up and bites his head off. <laughs> You know, that would not stop him doing a sequel. <laughs> or or if um, Rambo was in the Vietnam mission. <laughs> yeah, that would have been awesome. <laughs> uh, King Ghidorah first appeared in Ghidorah in 1964. And the three-headed dragon was created to be an enemy for Godzilla, Rodan and Mothra. Uh, the dialogue through that, the entire series, has been excellent. Mm. But it was really quite touching in this final issue. Murakami and Ken lamenting that the kids get all the cool toys. And Murakami decided he's going to be the one that flies the black hole cannon. A well done. And actually quite touching scenes. Especially as the entire issue is building up to Murakami's demise. And the thing with it as well is, even though they both know it's the last time they're going to see each other, they're still joking like they always are. They're still just joking around with each other. And it's repetitive. But the Godzilla fight scenes are well rendered and just tinged with a little bit of melancholy. Yeah, the further you get into it, the more yeah melancholy it is. The more it's although the action scenes are still exciting and visually stunning, mm. the, and have everything that you could possibly want from a Godzilla fight. It's funny when Murakami, for example, steals the black hole machine, and it's exciting when he teams up with his decades-long adversary to take down the greater threat. But then there's this sadness to it when he turns against Godzilla and plunges both of them into the black hole. Not so much for Murakami, who is resigned to his fate and goes into this knowing full well he isn't coming back. But for his friend Ken, who, amidst all the jubilation at the end over the disposal of the monsters, is the only person not rejoicing. He just stands there, holding Murakami's diary. Which was a sad but not depressing ending. Yeah. And I presume that Godzilla, like James Bond, mm. will return. As we see in the last panel. Yeah. He's still out though somewhere. Or is that a different Godzilla? Probably a different one. You think? Mm. Well, the thing with that issue as well is the very first panel starts off with Ota acknowledging that his life's ending soon. Yeah. Like, well, today. Yeah. It's... See, they don't mention is there something to do with the smoking that he knows his life's coming to an end. Because mm. his smoker's cough has really gotten quite terrible he, by this he point. He coughs up blood on that yeah. rack in that panel. he's coughing up blood. So, that's not good. No. So, is the implication, though, that this way he's going out on his own terms? Yeah. He's, he's choosing to beat he's choosing, his cancer. Yeah. 
is choosing not to go out, well, whether it's cancer or whatever. It specify. No, but it's never mentioned. It's all subtext. Yeah. But the idea that he goes into this issue knowing he's not coming out of this, mm. he's going to take Godzilla out, or at the very least, uh, have him acknowledge that he exists. And there's a nice little touch as well when he tries to fit into the pilot's outfit. Yeah. And, and um, Ken points out that he's, he doesn't fit in it. Yeah, and he's like, well, if it rips, they can bill me. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know not coming back at all it's very good it's an exceptionally good series I was very impressed with it it was one of them I said to you you can do what you want for your 18th birthday show and I'll be honest I was expecting you to do something Grant Morrison Vertigo related it could have been Metal Gear Solid 2 or Metal Gear Solid (laughs) and the fact that you picked Godzilla I was like oh Okay. Well, I've been wanting to do this one for a while. Yeah, well, it is in the book. Yeah. It is mentioned in the book, but it, it was an exceptionally good series. I was very impressed with it. Mm. As I have been impressed with all of the We Know Bugger All About This stuff that we've done. Only I know. Slightly yeah, more. Yeah, you, you know quite a lot about this one, but I didn't. Mm. So it's still, it still fits. Any final thoughts on it? Have they done any more of these Godzilla yeah, series? I think you've done quite a few on They've just finished off a 13-issue one. Right which is essentially a guy gets caught in a Godzilla attack and decides to devote his life to uh, taking down Godzilla. Right. But that lasts 13 or after five issues. Right. And they've just released a new series, I think it's Godzilla Rulers of the Earth. The only thing is, this is that what we just covered was the best looking of the... Like, oh, yeah, the art and the storytelling yeah. in that one was fantastic. Out of all of them, that is the best looking one they, they printed. Right. Okay, fair dues. Next time on an all-new episode, two-part special. Yeah. 13 Tales of Urban Vigilanteism, as we celebrate the best of the Batman. Yes, so, we're going back to being a <laughs> Batman podcast. Yeah. So, is that it? You got it down to 13? I've got I've willed it down to 13, right, right. and I was like, I can't get this down to 10. I can't, there's nothing I want to drop here. So, I'm going for a Batman's dozen. All right. Which works. <laughs> totally works, yeah. I'm quite down with that. So how many are you coming up with? I do not know yet. And I've got four right. that I'm thinking of. Right. I'm just going to have to come up with six more. All right, fair enough. Uh, so that's what we're doing for the next two weeks. I hope that you enjoyed this couple of weeks of doing stuff that we don't know anything about. Like I said last time, or maybe the time before, I forget now. There is a point where you just want to do something different from what everyone else is doing. And there are many other comic shows out there, not just on Two True Freaks. And the idea was, well, let's do something no one else is going to be doing. Because there are a couple of times recently where we did something that somebody else did the same week. Yeah. And we were going to do something and somebody else did it when we were going to do it. And I dropped it so that we didn't have that same problem. And I just kind of threw my arms up and said, right, no one's going to do Cosmic <laughs> Spider-Man. Yeah. And that's where that came from. It's just, no one, no other bugger <laughs> is going to do this. And then I got the idea of reaching out to Luke and, and David, hello, and doing G.I. Joe, and then that became, well, okay, let's do Conan as well, then. We've never done that. And then mm. Michael's led us into this, and that's where that all came from. Um, I've no idea what we're doing after Batman. No. Because that will be episode 150. Mm. so we, we may have to come up with something special for that I've got an yeah. idea but Michael, it's a very difficult Michael idea Michael doesn't me. seem very keen on it <laughs> but for me it's, it's, it's a doddle yeah. we could just do that one issue if you want unless no, you can come I up with something alright you have a think about it so join us next week for 13 Tales of Urban Vigilanteism which will be a two part there's no way we're going to the notes of what 20, 30 odd <laughs> pages long and that's, that's just me you. Michael's not written anything yet so that's going to be a two part 
Thank you very much for indulging us. Mm. So we'll get back to capes and tights soon. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed them. And we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Goodbye. is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Yeah, we'll 